Hello, everybody, and welcome to Outward Slate's show about the L's, the B's, the G, wait, the LGBTQ <laughs> pluses. Don't ever try and say those slowly <laughs> before you've had all of your morning no. coffee. I'm Jules Gil Peterson, um, apparently adrift somewhere in an acronym. <laughs> I'm Brian Lauder, I'm an editor at Slate, and Jules, listen, I it, it, we're recording earlier today, and I feel you. I just woke up from a dream, like, I don't know, an hour and a half ago, <laughs> where I was, like, the catering services for this new season of Drag Race. Oh, my God. <laughs> but but it was, like, Drag Race on mm. tour, and we were, like, staying in elementary school, oh. so I was having to cook for all of these queens, like, in a cafeteria. <laughs> and it was extremely stressful, and they were not grateful for my efforts, so... That's that's the energy that I'm bringing into the show this morning. Just I bet you look really cute in a catering outfit, though. That's true. I you know you know in dreams you usually can't see yourself, but I bet I did. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're right. I about can that. see it. I can see it. <laughs> well, speaking of production, you know, because of last year's writers' strikes and actors' strike, shout out to organized labor. We're kind of knee deep uh, in an award season sandwich. I don't know if it's like a it's a hero or a grinder or a sub, depending on where you live, but a really really big, long, never ending season. So you know if. <laughs> Kind of like me, you never really knew what the difference was between a Golden Globe and an Emmy. Well, who cares anymore? Because it's sort of impossible even to remember which shows red carpet looks you were even scrolling uh, on your feed last night anyways. But one thing is definitely true. There is a lot, a lot of queer and trans talent nominated and being recognized across film and television this year, although across a bunch of other media too at other awards shows. So We couldn't possibly take on all of that. We thought we would just break a little piece of it off and dive in. So on today's show, Brian and I are joined by extra special guest, Jeff Bloomer, who's going to help us sort through all of our feelings about All of Us Strangers, the new Andrew Hay film starring Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal as a pair of lonely gay neighbors, then lovers, in a London high-rise whose attachment formed kind of in the hollow of some shattering grief comes with a, a pretty surreal and haunting twist. But first, Brian, I think it's time for some prides and or provocations if you got one for me. I could not let January go without discussing Shelby and Dolly. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by Shelby I and Dolly? Think so, but... <laughs> okay, I will remind all of our listeners. It has been a little yeah. while, so it's fine. This was the gay couple who went viral freaking out about an American Airlines flight oh, just yeah. after Christmas. Yes. Uh, that's right. I'm talking about <laughs> Dustin, Anthony, and quote their girls, Shelby and Dolly. <laughs> if y'all missed this, it's worth going like just googling it and going and, and watching the video because I can't really convey it all here. But basically, a flight was delayed and then eventually canceled. I think it's two gay guys of a certain age. One partner is freaking out and yelling and being very inappropriate. The other is trying to calm him down. And the way he tries to calm calm him down is like, "Remember the girls. Remember the girls, baby. We're going back home. Remember, don't forget about the girls." Like, we're just trying to get home. Blast. And then one of them, like, cusses out a lady who's in a wheelchair. It's, like, very... It's a a lot and and, and sort of intense. But uh, I wanted to process on the show how to feel about this. Mm. In part because I was someone who flew out of Charlotte on that same day. (gasps) So I was in the airport. My family is down Mm. around there. I was in the airport (laughs) when this Mm. happened. 
Obviously, I am provoked by the behavior and the gay representation, right? This is not <laughs> what representation. What we well, this is not what we want. <laughs> this is not how we want to be out in the world and the right. being. It's messy. It's mean. They were sad. They need, <laughs> they needed to go home. But I share in their provocation at American Airlines because when has that? company not been a problem an airline that does not respect the girls does not respect the girls at all uh does not respect me i don't fly them like i there's always a problem always a problem so i understand that but then and this is you know the reason that it went viral we've got shelby and dolly now i knew immediately in my heart of hearts that these were dogs (gasps) i I did not need anybody to tell me that i was I turned I turned to my partner Cam and I was like those are dogs they're they're definitely dogs 100%. And then of course social media sleuths dug this up indeed they were dogs named after almost certainly steel magnolias <laughs> great detail there being one is a character and one is just Dolly Parton who right. plays a role in it so it's like it's like an actress That's very gay. And a character it's so yeah. gay. It's so gay to choose one and of southern. each of each and southern to choose one of each category. Mm-hmm. Incredible gay naming choices mm. for the dog. So I'm kind of proud mm. of them for mm-hmm. that. So this is a mixed bag for me. I don't know. I think generally it's a nasty situation on the ground. You know, I, they needed to not scream at people in the airport. But I'm going to remember the girls, mm. I think, for the rest of my life, Jules. I, I don't know. That's really beautiful. <laughs> and I think it shows a lot of maturity and wisdom because... I don't know if I can tolerate gay men comparing women to dogs anymore. I'm just kidding. Um, Ah! You know, American (laughs) Airlines, unfortunately, thanks to Ronald Reagan's deregulation of the airline industry, you know, is like the thing I'm forced to fly because I live near a hub. Um, And yeah, let me tell you. It's not my favorite experience. One day I'll tell the story about how I was actually seated, you know, in a full um, P100 PPE mask beside uh, one Marjorie Taylor Green on a flight from Atlanta <laughs> to, to DC. But that's a story for another episode. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't episode, solve the problems of America. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> oh my God. I can't wait to hear that. Uh, but for now, Jules, do you have a brighter provocation for us? Not for the first time, and I'm sure not for the last time. I am provoked by the Ohio State Legislature. Uh, You know, sorry to be kind of a a doomsday sayer here, but, you know, we're recording at the end of January, and uh, it's been been quite a start to the year uh, in terms of anti-trans political campaigning and violence, uh, legislative violence at least, just to, to set the stage as of recording. You know, we're, we're near the end of the first month of the year, seem to have had 300 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in state legislatures. Most of those are anti-trans. Just to put that in comparison, last year was like by far the most earth-shatteringly worst year we've ever seen. We, ha- we almost hit 600 pieces of legislation mm-hmm. introduced. Over 80 were passed. But, but we're at the end of January and we've almost hit half of that uh, already for the year. So this is not a good sign. But Ohio, you know, listeners, you probably remember that at the end of December, the Ohio State Legislature passed a pretty draconian 
law that sort of uh, sandwiched, that's my favorite verb today for some reason, sandwiched together, uh, you know, a ban on participation in sports with uh, a ban on uh, gender-affirming health care for, for youth. And then, you know, the, the governor, DeWin, actually vetoed that bill. And at the time, this is, you know, right around Christmas, I was pretty grumpy about the the journalistic coverage. He's a Republican, but if you look into it, he vetoed it on a pro-life basis, uh, which like... Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, but, but but also, you know, in his in his actual veto statement, he's like, I don't want to sign this bill into law because, as I understand it, it stands a large likelihood of being found unconstitutional. And I would much rather mm-hmm. we create new state regulations on medicine that... Um, are even more, you know, restrictive, for example, might uh, restrict trans adults ability to transition, kick them off their prescriptions, forcibly detransition adults in the state of Ohio. Right. Um, Right. But because, you know, state regulation powers function differently than just a blanket ban under the law, his reasoning was, oh, these have a much like higher likelihood of surviving any legal challenge. And I I hate to say it, but I think he was right about that. This is a really, really serious problem. (laughs) This is why I'm provoked. Um, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think actually, you know, these moments of like hollow victory where where a right wing politician is like, oh, we can't pass this like just literal discrimination bill are not victories. Yeah, yeah, and they're often yeah. the pretext for going admi- through, you know, administrative means to actually do even more harm. But administrative revision just doesn't have the same patina as a law. And it doesn't get covered right. the same way. It's much more hard to understand. And also like trans healthcare is already a mess of regulation. And so the reason why we're vulnerable to this in a way like other people aren't <laughs> when they do the same things that we do or take the same hormones we do is because of this like awful medical system that just burdens us mm-hmm. with ridiculous amounts uh, of, of you know, oversight to begin with and interference in our bodily autonomy. But anyways, <laughs> what did I have to worry about? Because the Ohio State Legislature just overruled the governor's veto. Uh, and so this, you know, now Ohio will be the 22nd state in the country to to ban gender affirming care for minors. Uh, I, I, you know, it's it's sad news. Um, but there's something about the kind of like, I don't know, centrifuge of devastation here where like every outcome was really bad. Um, and they were kind of just like swirling around each other. And then one ended up winning the day. And it's it's horrific. Um, I, I just think that's where we are right now. Um, that's what I that's what I see for 2024. Uh, and I and yeah. I really think, you know, well, just to say, we're, we're losing these battles. Uh, it's it's pretty, re- pretty terrible. I don't have faith in the in the judiciary's ability to <laughs> to stop this um tidal wave and so i'm feeling i mean provoked is just just beginning to scratch the surface but i'm pretty pretty concerned um there's a lot on our plates for 2024 but uh you know uh, you know trans people's very very viability <laughs> of being able to have any minimal minimal sovereignty over their bodies is really on the line this year more than ever uh and this might prove to be in a sad sort of way a kind of definitive of year so just just sorry to start the new year off like that but but i gotta no no need to be sorry i mean that's it's it's something that's it's it's sadly true and it's something that we're going to be covering this year like you said i think that's that is uh obviously the way things are going and it's very serious and very disturbing um so yeah no 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 need to be sorry about that (laughs) all right well we will have a quick break and we'll be back uh to talk about all of us strangers 
All right, we are back. All of Us Strangers is the new film from English writer-director Andrew Hay, who's best known for his widely beloved Weekend, the 2015 feature 45 Years, and the, let's say, divisive HBO series Looking, which was about a group of gay men navigating sex, friendship, loneliness, and the streets of mid-2010 San Francisco. All of Us Strangers is Hay's first major release since the pandemic, and it's largely been greeted with praise by critics. The narrative is a sort of complicated, moody gay romance, this time within the garb of a ghost story. It follows lonely 40-something screenwriter Adam, played by Andrew Scott, and his budding relationship with the younger Harry, played by Paul Mescal, who I think we all agree is nice to see on screen. They are seemingly the only residents of an eerie apartment building outside of London. Uh, when he's not getting to know Harry in fits and starts, Adam spends his time traveling by train to his childhood home for chats with his parents which is somewhat surprising since they both died in a car accident when he was 12. These spectral conversations allow Adam to come out to his parents and attempt to catch them up on his life, which is a moving, if sometimes to me, confusing exercise. Likewise, his interactions with Harry allow for the exploration of intergenerational gay themes like identity and AIDS trauma, as well as an accidental ketamine trip, <laughs> which features prominently in the film. The whole thing is really lovely and hazy and sometimes baffling, with a twist ending that is nothing if not bold. <laughs> Many gays are gushing about it, but I've also heard more so in back channels that some are finding it, uh, and these are, these are quotes, vacuous, <laughs> outdated, and saccharine. So we've got a real division. Uh, since the movie is now rolling out widely, we thought it would be a good time to discuss and figure out the truth. To help us do that, we've brought in Slate editorial director and gay about the cinema, Jeff Bloomer, who is an avowed hey appreciator. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, hello. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. <laughs> so before we get started, I just wanted to warn our listeners that we are going to be uh, discussing the ending of the film uh, and spoilers. So if you haven't seen it yet and you care about spoilers, maybe wait uh, to listen to the conversation until after you've done that. Before we get into it, let's listen to a clip. All right, as usual, kind of want to start just by hearing general reactions. Were y'all moved by this? Were you technically impressed? <laughs> did you I know I know my introduction was a little uh loaded. Uh did you find it you know baffling in terms of what it was trying to do? Let's let's just hear what our general reactions were. Uh maybe Jeff, let's start with you since you're our guest today. Okay, so <laughs> Brian sort of knows this, but I'm a fan of Andrew Hay. I have an uncomplicated relationship with looking. I actually think it's fine. Yeah. I really like his other movies. Um, I my favorite movie of his is actually the movie where like a young boy and a horse like have horrible things happen to them called Lean on Pete. Very good director, <laughs> in my opinion. I really think he's good. I expected to like have a similarly uncomplicated relationship with this movie, but mm -hmm. then I saw it and I was like, "What the fuck is going on with this?" <laughs> I, there was a lot of things that were lovely about it, as you say. There's like like pr perfectly good sex scenes. It, it's like sweet, kind of. It, yeah, most of these like sort of complicated conversations with a person who's closeted into his 40s. All of it was like, okay, but the full sixth sense turn of it and all of it, I was just like, what on earth is he thinking? And apparently the novel has barely anything to do with the actual movie. So it was like, yeah, it's based on him. a it's based on a novel. Right. right. I it's a, it's a Japanese novel, which is a much different context, apparently. But uh, yeah, I, I found it to be extremely, extremely mysterious. I don't know if I thought it was vacuous. It was just weird. <laughs> and like, I have no idea what he was going. I, I just like, I don't get the movie, really. That's basically where I was. 
Yeah, vacuous might be a strong word, uh, but uh, it is one I heard for real. Uh, Jules, what was your reaction? <sighs> Pretty similar. Like, you know, I, I, I will say... I have appreciated Andrew Hay in the past. Like, like when when Weekend came out, I was like, okay, this feels very au courant. Gay men, kind of sad, kind of empty. Hey, it's the <laughs> 21st century. There's a malaise out there. Sometimes you have a hookup. Sometimes it's nice to have pleasure. How much does it really deliver? Does it ever change your life? Eh, not really, but hey, at least we're not straight, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But then, like, within five minutes of All of Us Strangers starting, I was like, oh, my God, here we are in the same world of, like, imagine being a lonely gay guy. <laughs> and I'm like, no, totally, totally. I have imagined it with you before, darling. Um, the thing that really, as someone who has plenty of um, diagnosed childhood traumas, but mm-hmm. whose parents are, you know, mercifully still alive, I just did not like the conceit of being able to go visit like you know your dead parents and being able to have all these like brutal cathartic like like conversations with them like the kind like it all felt to me like the sort of exercise that maybe i imagine like a better help therapist would (laughs) you know give a depressed professional gay man like why don't you write a letter um why don't you write a dialogue conversation to your parents what would you what what would you say to them and what what do you think you need to hear from them and it's like i don't know i can i could i can suspend disbelief for one of those but like by the like 10th time there's one of these like everyone's crying and saying all the right things and then like having one hundred thousand, like reparative catharsis i was just like it actually grossed me out. I was like, is this is this nice to anyone? Like, I don't even know what kind of wish fulfillment that is because it just seemed so divorced from like from from the experience of suffering in the real world. Like the whole I get the whole point is like, yeah, you don't get to go and get closure with people when when things like that happen. But like are we really supposed to imagine that that would be anything but like an excruciating, bizarre kind of humiliating experience? Maybe that's what the film is saying. I don't know. I just actually like in those moments found myself like guffawing and being like, I'm falling completely out of this, this, this little universe, Um, which, you know, I think maybe matters when the universe is kind of surreal and metaphysical, right? Like it's not, you know, there's like a bit of a a speculative or sci-fi twist to this film. And so by the time all of that stuff was happening, I was like, I'm sorry, you lost me a long time ago. And I was just sort of admiring Claire Foy's hair. Um, Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. Well, I think, I think a useful thing uh, that's, that is, I actually wanted to talk about sort of the, the, therapy of it all so i'm glad the hair no, oh. well the, the hair is great but no the therapy of it all uh, but let's <laughs> i think maybe a good thing to do because you've both brought up um sort of the two threads of the movie right we've got this mm-hmm. we've got this romance between these two men that's in this sort of isolated you know apartment building and then we've got the parental sort of ghost story encounter thing that's happening right do we think these like work together i have heard some people say they don't think it does that there was a review in new york mag uh, by allison williams where i think the headline was basically this is like two movies trying to be one right my feeling was that the the romance was sort of boring and empty because partially partially because we didn't get to know anything really about paul mezcal's character about harry there's like nothing there and it's so it's hard to like invest too much in that the the parental story about this re-encounter and this you know this this ability to sort of come out 
in that format is a little more interesting to me. So anyway, what did you guys think about the two stories together? Did, did it work? I first, I didn't have that much of an issue with the way the stories were next to each other because they were channeling the same sort of shit. Like this guy has an inability to come out and he's obviously like experiencing intimacy for the seemingly for the first time and the with the parents also like kind of like slowly drawing that out of himself but they were uncomfortable next to each other because i think jules identified something that like the thing with the parents is weirdly sexual right like from the very beginning he he first sees his father he's like oh yeah cruising his father and like who wasn't in that theater cruising jamie bell right it was a it was a (laughs) first encounter and then the mom too is like touching touching his chest and being like oh i thought she would have been hairy like your father yeah <laughs> that part of it is so strange and so the movie dovetails in that way too that he's his sexual awakening is happening in both parts yeah it, it's very very uneasy and weird i i know that slate ran like a um sort of explainer like connecting the dots of the movie for people who wish to have such a thing done for them by sam adams who's a great slate writer and i just even after reading that, i'm still like i don't understand exactly what was happening there like what what what, what the goal was with those strange um moments i was as i've said like very confused by this movie and kind of not like in a plot sense but just like what is it for a sense so i, I wasn't a big fan but as we're talking about it i actually am feeling And it's it's because you brought up the word sentiment, uh, Jules, or like sentimental. There is like something lovely about its commitment to sentimentality, but it does bleed over into comedy too much. I'm glad Mm. that you said that because I found myself amused in ways that I don't think I was meant to be exactly, exactly in those scenes. And I, and I felt kind of like, uh, like gross about it. I was like, like, I don't, I don't know how to like situate myself. Uh, in, in relation yeah. to this to this storytelling, because it's giving me mixed messages. You're like mixed signals kind of about about how I'm supposed to feel. Parent scenes are very much that way. I think to the one dimensionality point, like the fact that they both exist just only in his personal imaginative world or writerly world, maybe makes them one dimensional and kind of con- it's kind of controlling, actually. It's like mm-hmm. they aren't they aren't really his they aren't really like human parents that have you know complicated relationships to sexuality or to their child or whatever they're these weird empty figures that he's like projecting onto and i think that that gets that brings i wanted to go back to like the therapy point that you brought up because this struck me as a movie where therapy therapeutic ideas uh like sort of writing a letter to your childhood self right or like re-encountering re-reparenting the inner child had been turned into art or had had attempted to be turned into art and i think that's something we've seen a lot recently like in the last i don't know five years or so like especially around trauma um kind of turning like i went and processed my trauma and now i'm gonna make a story about it and i think it often kind of turns out weird let's say i don't want to say bad always but just kind of like strange i wondered if y'all had like thoughts about that process because it it struck me as i think like one of the things that was uncomfortable about this is it almost felt too personal um to to the director maybe um and and i found myself yeah just just a little i don't know feeling like i was sitting in on someone's therapy sessions and not knowing what to do with it um does that ring true at all there's a flatness to the actual sentiment they arrive at. I promise you, I'm very sentimental about gay white men <laughs> relationships. Like I, 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 this should have spoke to me if it was going to speak to someone. Okay. Yeah. But I was watching this movie and it was just, it didn't, 
I, I have a relationship not that different than these this guy had with his dead parents. <laughs> like, it's, I get it's, it's in the realm, but there's just something about it that like that you're waiting for an extra layer. You're waiting mm. for something a little bit more to happen, um, or or them to go a little deeper in some way because it just doesn't. There's never really an aha moment, except for when this movie thinks it has one at yes. the end. I'm so confounded watching this, and I, I say I, I don't mind basic gay stuff. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I really did like looking. I just for this movie, it was, it felt like he thought that he was like hitting on some profundity, and that was just not there. Mm. I think it gets to your point. It's there's a lot of emotion going on, but it has actually mm. tapped into much that was. Sort mm. of, yeah, no, I, I'm so glad you put it that way, Brian. I, I think you're you're so right. Let me land with a kind of a hot take. So I'm feeling warmed up from our conversation. You know, I think part of the problem with making every character dependent on trauma and then trying to to do something with that is that the actual structure of trauma, and in this case, there's a real genuine yeah, trauma, sure, the loss sure. of two parents, like that's really substantial. And a horrific accident, um, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But part of the problem with that is it is so singular, mm. right? And, and the weird thing about transposing these kind of therapy practices is that like, part of the problem with trauma is that it's so difficult to communicate uh, and it and often the the forms that it takes for people the things that repeat the things that you know that we've sort of boiled down to like these cheaper ideas of like triggers and da, 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 they often are really weird and generic and like they don't it's not obvious like from their content why they would be wounding or difficult mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily beautiful they could often just seem really stupid and annoying and repetitive <laughs> just saying too much about myself right now but um <laughs> right but, but but part of the problem with that is like i think this whole trauma industry in pop culture thinks that like because trauma is supposed to be like the worst category of things that can happen to people that it's like therefore the strongest grounds for sympathy ever that we could have and it's more emotionally raw and genuine and I actually just like don't think that's true like I don't think trauma is actually a very good grounds for sympathy because it's often so profoundly isolating individualizing and enigmatic like and there's a way that this film is so private like I, I actually I really take to heart what you're saying that like the the character Adam is a screenwriter and and perhaps like the parents aren't even supposed to be his real parents they're just sort of like these like figments not only of his imagination but of his writerly self mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and like I'm willing to actually say then that 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 kind of gives context to the weirdness of those scenes but to me, then that just brings me back to why, like, I don't really feel like I want to know someone's sort of private reckoning. Exactly. But I think at the same time, um, you've got this thing going on where it is both an extremely personal story that, it, right, that I don't necessarily have any business knowing about. But at the same time, like, it's written often in these very kind of, I don't know, like, signposty generalized statements about like for example the aids trauma right oh like it doesn't mean that you're all sick now or like like there are these like sort of big um signposty bold kind of two general statements that that it uses to try to um infuse i think infuse it with specificity but it, it comes out right like wait dated or just almost luxury or something and even and even even in the relationship between uh, the two, between Harry and Adam, that discussion about like, 
well, you use the word queer, but I use the word gay, but gay means this to me, but queer means that to you. It just felt like like Twitter artic- discourse. Yeah, like an article from like, but like from five years ago or something. Exactly. Like, or more. Um, I didn't used to fuck very much because I thought if I fucked, I would die. Yeah, honey, I saw that on Tumblr in 2013. Get over it. Right. I, you know, I the movie jumps into so many of these weird contemporary. It's so true. No, you're so the, right. The queer yeah. versus gay thing like could have been a lot worse. It somewhat gently approaches that. <laughs> okay, so before we go, we should. I, I think we do have to talk about this ending because it is really something else i was gasping in my house uh and and my my uh, two partners were also gasping and not in a good way i would say about the twist um it really is a a you know again spoiler alert it really is a kind of a gay sixth sense uh moment where we we find out that um adam uh has i guess inadvertently killed Harry by not letting him into his apartment. The first time they meet earlier in the movie, uh, Harry comes to his door drunk and is like, I'd like to hook up with you. And he doesn't let him in. And we find out that all of the interactions uh, throughout the rest of the movie were with uh, another ghost, the ghost of Harry, uh, because Harry's dead body has been like rotting in the bathtub in his apartment the entire time. But (laughs) it's okay because Adam invites his ghost from his apartment to come stay with him in the other apartment and they become uh, stars in the sky or something like that. So... (laughs) What did we what did we make of this? Because it really it really took a took a turn for me uh there. Um and, and I had to I had to kind of just like leave the room a little bit because I couldn't handle. Um but did it did this plot twist shock you guys? Did it make sense to you? Did it fit? What was your reaction? <laughs> I have a non queer like wanting to argue about this instinct of this movie is that I don't think one guy is dead. The um what's the screenwriter's name? Adam, 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 yeah, yeah. It's unclear if he's dead or not. Yeah, that's true. Right, that seems to be uh, it's it purposeful ambiguity. So you're supposed to talk about it. I don't. I, I that's not what I got. But my boyfriend, who I saw with, was like, "Oh no, I think he's dead too. That's why he's a star." Right. Guy. As we were talking about it, we were all just like, "Jesus, what are you even saying?" Like, talking about right. <laughs> I mean, I think the the real takeaway is never turn down a hookup because if you don't have sex with that guy, he might He'll die. die. That's how important it is to always take every opportunity to have sex. I honestly, like, in that scene, I was like, hmm, what would I do in this situation, really? And I was like, maybe I would let him in. Maybe I would let him in. He had Japanese whiskey. He's Paul Mess. I don't know. Maybe I'd let him Yeah. In. He it lives was- in your building, so, like, you know he has the credit score. Right. <laughs> it's funny because there's, like, actually not that much to talk about at the end. It's so fucking weird. They literally float sky with like sentimental music like if you haven't seen this movie i i don't know how to even describe it to you but the whole theater after when the lights came up everybody was like oh and we just kind of like shuffled out in like a monotone because it's just it's like what is going on but people seem to love the movie at the same time it's it's a it's a bizarre experience I really meant to say more nice things about Andrew Hay, who I actually think is a very talented filmmaker. I think we've talked about this movie enough. Please go check out All of Us Strangers. I'm sorry if we've been too negative, because uh, a lot of people do love it. It is playing widely. We'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, uh, you can write to us at outwardpodcast at slate.com.
All right. Well, that is almost all the time we have for this month. But before we go, as always, we have some updates to your gay agenda. Jules, why don't you start us off? All right. Well, you know, January brings the Sundance Film Festival towards the end of the month. Um, and I am a longtime fan. Uh as someone who's been lucky enough to be a part of of a film that that premiered at Sundance a few years ago. And so I've been keeping my eye on what's going on this year from afar. And there's quite a lot of fascinating and important offerings going on. But I just want to direct everyone's attention to one of them, you know, for your gay agenda, which is the film Pony Boy that uh, is, is getting a lot of uh, buzz. <laughs> <laughs> this is a wonderful film that kind of follows up uh, a short that folks may have encountered, you know, in the past. It's a wonderful film that follows an intersex sex worker in New Jersey named Pony Boy, and the movie takes place uh, on a single uh, Valentine's Day night. There's a lot that goes on. It's like a really, from what I here, I haven't gotten the chance to see it yet. It's really kind of mm. beautiful and heartfelt and funny and irreverent. And it features some incredible performances. And it introduces the world um, to the absolutely incredible actor River Gallo, uh, who has also been just turning incredible looks at uh, at Sundance and giving fantastic interviews. I've just been delighted uh, every time I see River Gallo on my social media feed. So, you know, this is sort of a funny gay agenda because like you can't really go back in time and go to Sundance to go watch this movie but just like keep an eye out for Pony Boy keep an eye on River Gallo watch this space support this film and then when you do have a chance really really recommend going to see it you know I I just think there's something really exciting and important and talented going on in this film and and with these actors that I'm just so excited to see um, all of them getting the, the kind of world stage that they deserve Ooh, that sounds so exciting. I would love to see that. Yeah. yeah. I will watch I will watch the space. And I'm going to check out those looks, too. I haven't seen any Sundance looks, so I should do that. Yeah, it's always, like, a funny festival space because it's, like, I mean, this is not a culture I'm a part of. It's, like, Utah <laughs> après ski culture. So, like, people are dressed very differently in Park City, Utah than, like, at, you know, whatever, Cannes or, like, something in Hollywood. So I think it's kind of hilarious to watch people from all over the country and all over the world have to learn how to wear, um, like, puffy jackets. Puffy jackets. <laughs> yeah. Without, like, you know. How do you accessorize? How do you accessorize? Yeah, no, but seriously, jacket. how do you not get swallowed up with that? That's That could be a whole gay agenda item in and of itself. But um, speaking of, Brian. And what have you got? I have got a really gay cookie recipe. Oh my god, <laughs> you are the sweetest. Uh, well, I was thinking I had there are all these movies and all these things. I could have brought something like that, but but I was thinking of what what's the truly the gayest thing that has been in my life in the last I don't know month or so. And it's actually this recipe. Uh, it's called um, Technicolor Cookies. I was going to say, how is the cookie gay? But you will see. I mean, I, I will tell you. The recipe is called Technicolor Cookies, and it's by Samantha Sinavaratna uh, in the New York Times Cooking app, which is a wonderful resource if you don't already use that. The recipe came out sort of in December, but they are these gorgeous shortbread cookies with a a glaze that is, as the the name suggests, Technicolor, like the most beautiful six seven color like stripes and swoops and swirls that you've ever seen and the color palette is very like uh sort of bright neon pastel-y like gorgeous colors it's done with this very fun ingredient that i've never used before called it's food coloring but it's gels um and so the color that you get from that is like a lot richer 
Um, and then you do this really cute technique where you make kind of like palette of, of the swooping colors. And then you dip your cookies in that so that you get all of these wonderful lines. And none of them are the same. They all like they look, I wish you could, it's, a, we're in an audio medium, but, uh, if you could see it, each one is different. Each one, you know, is, is like a unique pattern. Um, and they're so fun to play with. Uh, and I, and you can use like the recipe is a, a shortbread, but I did mine actually with, um, crescent moon shaped, uh, gingerbread cookies. Um, and it was just so, f- and I put glitter on them because why not? Uh, and they're just gorgeous. So, um, we'll put the link in the show page to this recipe. Um, but they're called Technicolor cookies. And yeah, if you're, if you're still in a cookie baking mood, even after the holidays, I have to recommend these cause they're, they're really fun and, uh, they're very gay. Your friends will, will know that you are a, uh, <laughs> avowed queer. If you, they will know that you like crescents. <laughs> crescents. Yes. If, mm-hmm. if, if you bring, <laughs> if you bring these to the party. So. Uh, yeah, that's that my sounds delectable. Brian, are you a big baker? I am. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I yeah. like I like to bake. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's a yeah, it's a fun part of my life sometimes. Jeff, uh, I think you brought us a gay agenda item. Uh, do you want to share that with our listeners? Yes. So I've been. <laughs> it's a recipe for vinaigrette. So please stop listening now. If that is so terrible that you can't bear it, uh, there's a restaurant in New York City called Bouvet. It used to be Brian and I in our old days. Slate used to have an office in Manhattan in the around the corner. I go there now when I'm in when I have the misfortune to be in Manhattan. And it's a lovely restaurant. It's a French restaurant. They have a location there, they have a location in Paris. It's just an old school bistro-ish French restaurant where they have like little dishes. Anyway, my boyfriend bought me their cookbook a couple of years ago because we like the restaurant. We go there when we go to movies in the area or something. And they have an excellent vinaigrette that doesn't feel very gay. It's literally half Dijon mustard half oil and a little bit of cider vinegar and then honey if you want and lots of salt obviously because there's tons of fat um the but the reason i recommend it there's something about the way that this woman this cookbook is not like recipes like in the molly bass style it's like there's much more like just her telling stories about how she likes to eat how she likes to drink wine how like you know how to live basically and this vinaigrette like i make it all the time and there is just there's something about it that feels very like, I think that everyone who listens to this should try it. It's, but I really, what I'm recommending is mm. this book, which is just a super lovely sort of thing about cooking chicken and hay and like beef cheek stew and her family and growing up and how to drink and how to eat. And it's like, it, it, there's something very renewing about it, particularly at the beginning of the year. Um, I really recommend the book. I think it's, you can get it for cheap online um, and it's quite lovely. Ooh, it sounds voluptuous. And I'm, I'm not mistaken. I don't think I am. I believe that she is a lesbian. Yeah, I think you're even more uh, on point about that. Well, that sounds delicious. Oh my God, I love the mustard ape vinaigrette. And listeners, I have to tell you, we didn't plan this, but two recipes in one show for Gay Agenda. All right, thank you, Jeff. That is the show for this week. As always, please send us feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook or X at Slate Outward. Please remember that we're doing advice segments regularly. Those have been really fun so far, but, you know, for them to work, we need your questions. So send send us any and all uh, queer advice questions. Voice memo is preferred, but uh, emails are also fine. Uh, that's also at outwardpodcast.slate.com. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that, go to slate.com slash outwardplus. 
Our show has been produced by the wonderful, wonderful Palace Shaw. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and you can rate and review the show so others can find and join in on the fun. Uh, Until next time, bye, Jules. Bye, Brian. Stay gay, everybody. <laughs>